Today's episode is called Marine Biology Student to Acclaimed Author, featuring guest April DeVilla. Pregnant, unemployed, and living in a dorm room at Stanford while her husband finished his degree, things were not looking up for April DeVilla. To make matters worse, her marine biology degree did not at all align with her passion for writing. April, you are a writer. Before you were a writer, you were working in marine ecology. What was that career like? Oh, I was so enamored with science when I went to my undergraduate degree down here in Southern California. I love science. I love the stories of science, the creatures. I was not a very good scientist. <laughs> I'm not detail-oriented enough. So I got my degree in biology. I focused in marine ecology. I did some interesting studies on invasive species for my master's thesis. And then I, after graduating, I did some more work with invasive studies. Uh, I worked on the Spotted Owl Research Project. It was a federal project up in the Northwest. I worked with some graduate students at the University of Washington. We were studying barnacles of all things, their reproductive patterns. I loved it. I loved like going out into the field and doing the field work. And but when it came to the data, my my <laughs> my data was uh, less than perfect. I tend to I would swap numbers. I you know just it <laughs> it was my my shortcoming in the occupation of scientist and and that threw me for a loop. I didn't know what to do. It at that point after I'd been working for about a year after graduating, I realized that if I wanted to continue on with science, I would need to get a PhD. I would be spending a lot more time in the lab and that I'd be working on all the stuff that I was not great at. What I loved was being outdoors. I loved putting the pieces, the science felt like a puzzle to me of like, why does this thing happen here? And why does this happen over here? And, and I still love that, but it turns out you can love that as a fan of science. You can read Scientific American and National Geographic and kind of get your fix that way. <laughs> what was it about marine ecology that got you interested in that area of science in the first place? Well, I think the thing that really grabbed my attention was invasive study species, because as the world gets smaller and smaller, it's not just humans that are moving around a lot more. I studied this little bug. I don't even remember the scientific name for it anymore. This was right after I graduated in the San Francisco Bay Area. They were studying this little, it looks like a pill bug. I don't know if you like the pill bugs that crawl around on the sidewalk but they're a marine version of them. And they they have invaded every port in the world at this point. And there's a crab that was also into the Bay Area that was out competing the other local crabs. And I'm fascinated with how the world is getting smaller in general and how invasive species really encapsulate that. Definitely. Is there anything that you've learned from marine ecology that you could apply to humans? I've been really fascinated oh. by people that, that take what they've learned in their careers and plot into their everyday life. Oh, I think one of the reasons I liked science was that I didn't have to deal with humans as much. <laughs> I really, I loved being out in the woods. I loved going out onto the water, the quiet of it. Let's see, if, is there something I could translate? I mean, I think being aware of how we impact our environments. Not that I would expect like the green crab to be conscientious of how it's affecting its environment, but I think becoming aware of the fact that we have and we do change the world as we move around, as we move ourselves and unknowingly other little creatures. 
just being more mindful of that. It's interesting. I don't know that there's much that can be done in terms of stopping invasive species. I really think this whole idea of the world getting smaller is is kind of a one-way arrow. You know, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle on that one of transporting invasive species back to where they came from. Definitely. You studied biology in college and you worked in marine ecology. So how did you discover that writing was going to be the career that you truly want to pursue? Right. That's a good question. I always loved writing. Uh, I was good at it. In fact, as I mentioned, the data part was harder for me. So people loved partnering with me on lab experiments because I loved writing the reports. I was always happy to write up the report and that was the part that everyone else hated. So I would always team up with someone who was really good with the data. They would do the work and I would write it up. And it was always kind of my strong suit, but I very bullheadedly pushed forward in my degree in science. And then when I had that moment of like, I'm either gonna have to go back to get a PhD and I'm gonna have to spend more time in the lab or I have to find something else I wanna do with my life, I really floundered for a while. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I took some temp jobs. I worked as a receptionist. I worked at Starbucks for a while. I, I didn't know. And then I met my now husband and he's a filmmaker and he was doing all this really amazing creative work. And I got sucked into that because it was so fun to just be you know, writing screenplays. He was making short films at the time. He was teaching at the um, San Francisco Academy of Art. And he was just living in this world of art. And I got, I was so enamored of all of it. So I kind of jumped on his bandwagon for a while. And then when I was pregnant with my daughter and I was out of work and I couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to do with myself. So I had all this weirdly free time. And what I found that I did to fill the time was write short stories with no reason. I had no reason to, to write short stories. It's just what I decided I wanted to do with free time. And then it got in my head of like, well, maybe I could do this thing, this writing thing for a living. Like people do that. I could be a writer. And shortly after my daughter was born, we moved back down here to Los Angeles and I applied to a writing program at the University of Southern California and decided to go get my degree in writing. And I'm so glad I did. It was such a great opportunity for me. I know you don't need a master's degree to be a writer. And I think it's important to put that out there. Plenty of wonderful writers never got their master's degree. But I, having been a science major, I felt like I needed some training. I needed some guidance. And more than that, going to a master's program is like taking a two-year time out to focus on changing your career, which I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And I loved it. I just, I feel, I felt like it was coming home. I, I loved the homework. I loved the people, the teachers. I mean, I still keep in touch with some of my professors. It was amazing. It can be a lot of pressure to put on a teenager to know what career they want to pursue for the rest of their life. Yeah. 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 Who knows? Who knows that at 18? And some people do maybe, but I certainly did not. It's just definitely about really exploring for, for you was going from marine ecology, and then trying out writing and, and discovering that that's what you really wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. And I probably needed all that time. You know, I had to get to it in my own way, on my own pace. If someone had told me at 18, oh, you're going to be a writer, I would have probably laughed at them. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to hear that news. What was the extent of your creativity at 18? 
Oh, I liked visual art at 18. In fact, I actually considered being an art major instead of a science major, but my mom was an artist and we always struggled financially. So I got it in my head that you know, I was going to get like a real job and have a regular paycheck and have this steady, steady work. And then I ended up working, <laughs> doing field research, which doesn't pay for shit. It's like, that's why research assistants are usually college students. It's because it just doesn't pay. So I kind of, that was part of the revelation in my floundering was like, if I'm not getting paid anyway, why wouldn't I just do something creative? And when I was in high school, I, I painted, I was, I did drawings. I loved ceramics. I was, I was very much into the visual arts back then. It's definitely important to be doing work that you feel fulfilled in, not just what can bring in a paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're lucky, you get both. And you can have a day job and do the passion thing. I mean, for years after I graduated with my master's, I got a degree, got a degree, I got the degree. And then I got a job working in marketing. I was writing you know, newsletters and I was writing social media posts, which hardly even counts as writing, but <laughs> I was working in words. And But every morning before I went to my day job, I would get up at 5am and work on the novel because I knew that if I tried to put the novel work at the end of the day, I'd be too tired to work on it and it wouldn't get done. With your transition into writing, was it a direct transition or did you have to slowly transition into it? Did you have to have mixtures of science before you had to move directly into writing? Well, I had that long period of not really knowing what I was doing. So I, I probably, I think my last official job in doing research work was, let me think, this would have been 2001. And it wasn't until 2007 that I enrolled at USC. So there was there was a good five-year period in there where I just, you know, I worked all the crappy jobs not knowing what I wanted. And then there was about a year of figuring out, oh, maybe this writing thing. And then I applied for the, pro so it was, there was a process there, but there was very little overlap in the periods where I was doing research and being a writer, officially speaking. Right. I believe you, you did some work for the Northern California government writing water proposals. Oh, yeah, that was actually down here in Southern California. Oh, it was I in Southern for, California. Um, yeah, I worked for a civil engineering company, and they mostly did water projects. And that job was fascinating because water is a big issue here in California. We don't get enough of it in Southern California. We steal it from other places. I mean, steal is a harsh word, but that's how that's how the Northern Californians feel about it. Really? And I'm from Northern California at heart. Yeah, I don't know if, like being as far away as you are, but in California, Northern California and Southern California are completely different camps. It really should be two states. And I'm kind of torn because I grew up in Northern California and all the grownups are always grumbling about how Los Angeles is stealing all of our water. And now here I am living in Southern California, enjoying all of that stolen water. But water is a very contentious issue, especially, I mean, as years get drier and drier, where this drought just carries on and on. And my job at the civil engineering company, I called myself a nerd translator, and it's probably the closest I've ever gotten to my science and writing working together because they had all these really wicked smart engineers on board and they would write these wonderful water plans and designs and things for how to store and transport water. But the proposals they would de deliver to the cities kept getting rejected because they were written by engineers and they were unintelligible. <laughs> they would actually be like math equations trying to explain what they were doing. And I was like, no one understands you. So they hired me to come in and 
basically because I had enough of a science background to understand what they were saying and then write it into layman's terms, put it in digestible English so that they could send it to the city councils and the city councils could actually vote on whether they were going to implement the plan or not. They would at least understand. And I loved that. I loved working closely with scientists again, but not having to actually be the numbers person. But it also ended up being one of the darker times of my life because I worked in this little windowless room all by myself and I had to commute really far from my home and I, my babies were little. So I was leaving the house right as they woke up and then I was getting home as they went to bed. I hardly saw them. I started drinking too much. I just was a mess. So I ended up having to quit that job just for my mental health. <laughs> didn't work out, sadly. They didn't have windows that where you were working. Well, it was this long building. And so the CEO had the front office that looked out over this beautiful park. And that was where I would meet with him, like when I went for my interview. And then when I started work, they're like, here's your office. And it's down the hall. And it's this little cubby with no windows. And you don't have any coworkers. I mean, I would go and talk to the scientists when I needed to understand what they were working on. But for the most part, I like sat alone in the room with like out even, not even a window to look out of. And I just, it wasn't good for my mental health. No, not having any sunlight, not good for mental health. Yeah. And it's it, it almost mirrors 2020 where people were mostly <laughs> stuck indoors, little yes. sunlight. Yeah. And the way depression can kind of creep up on you and you're yeah. like, I don't feel so good. Yeah. <laughs> oh. It's like, well, what's causing yeah. all the, the the mental health problems? It's just like, oh, just yeah. like a lack of sunlight. What was 2020 like for you? Oh, it was such a weird year. I mean, I think for all of us, right? But for me, it was mixed blessings. It was really hard in so many ways. I think we all know that. But then I think we all had our own little silver linings in, in different ways. I hope I've heard a lot of like small silver lining stories. Like for me, one of the things that came out of the pandemic was I started this online writing group called A Very Important Meeting. And I also finished getting certified as a mindfulness instructor. And the two work together really importantly. It's so a very important meeting is this platform that my partner and I started. We now have three additional teachers. So there's five of us. And we offer 18 online writing groups a week where people can log on and we meditate for a few minutes just to focus our minds. We write together for 45 minutes and then we hang out and chat for 15. So the whole thing's only 75 minutes. But people who have come and the people who continue to come and join us are just, they've been a lifeline. It changed it, it changed, you know, sitting at home by myself into we've had people come from all over the world and join our meetings, and it's been amazing. So you went from like a physical window to now this virtual window. <laughs> I love yes, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's all donation based. So our whole our whole idea was to make it really accessible. You know, if people can, they throw in five dollars, but it's a very low pressure thing. And we're trying to, as much as we can, add sessions for different schedules, different time zones different kinds of teachers. And it's been a revelation. And it, when I started my meditation teacher training, I wasn't even really sure why I was doing it. I just had a sense of like wanting some more community around my meditation practice because I was just sitting alone by myself. I couldn't find a community. Like there was no meditation center near my house. 
And I just figured, well, if I can't find one, maybe I'll make one. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. And so that's definitely, that's been my silver lining of 2020 is, is that out of it came this whole new community that I'm just totally in love with. It's like creating community out of necessity. Like if it wasn't for that pandemic and everyone stuck at home, we wouldn't have this urge to, to create this sense of community. CDC calling for a pause in the use of the single dose. Well, and it was so funny too when um, the first month everyone got their vaccines, it was kind of before Delta variant raised its head again. But for one month, like everyone stopped coming to meetings <laughs> and we were like, oh no, are we done? Like, was this just a COVID thing? But now people are kind of, they're working us into their work schedules more. We've started another earlier morning meeting and people are, instead of just logging in whenever, people are coming before work or after work. And so we've shifted the schedule a little bit. It's valuable enough to people, and I feel this just for myself, that we're working it into our schedule as people get back to their normal lives. Well, you know, normal being, we're not entirely sure yet, but more normal. Definitely. Like if it's important to you, it's, it's scheduled. It shows how, how serious you are about, about that. And that's why we called it a very important meeting. Because I feel meeting. like a lot of times people don't prioritize their writing. It's kind of like, well, I'll squeeze it in if we can. And and we, we wanted to say, no, you put it on the calendar. Call it a very important meeting. And then tell people, you can't go to that other thing. You have a very important meeting with your writing. <laughs> you have to come. But I don't think that too often we, we schedule these times for for well-being and, and for, for self-care. Yeah, no, it's, uh, people generally don't. All of our self-care, I feel like, is a if I can get to it. It falls in that category of if I can get to it. And that's the stuff that never gets done. Because when it, no one has extra time. Who has extra time? Maybe during COVID we had a little extra time to do push-ups or something, but regular life, not so much. Yeah. Like one of the, the really big things during 2020 was people – overworking themselves, working eight plus hours of work in front of a computer. Yeah. Yeah. Someone said, I heard someone say, we're not working from home. We're living at work. That's how it felt. Yeah. Yeah. Living at work. That's a new one. Yeah. It's gross. (laughs) Did you like working from home or, or would you prefer being in a physical office space? Well, I do work from home now. So when I quit the engineering job for my mental health, my husband and I were able to swing it so that I can do writing full time and be at home. And I know that I'm very lucky to have his support in that. But I have, this is my home office. This is where I work. The biggest challenge over the pandemic was that I really need quiet to do my writing. And <laughs> for 18 months, the kids were home <laughs> and bored and making a lot of noise. So that was the biggest challenge for me. One of the, the biggest successes for you was the release of your first book. That was a week before the shutdown happened. My book yes. came out. 142 ostriches. That's what it's called, yes. Can you share what your, your book is about? Yeah, so it's called 142 Ostriches because it's set on an ostrich ranch with 142 ostriches on it. And the story is about a young woman named Tallulah Jones who inherits her grandmother's ostrich farm in the Mojave Desert. And the Mojave is like kind of our back door here in Los Angeles. 
And her initial response is that she's going to sell it if she wants to go live her own life. But over the course of the story, she comes to kind of appreciate having a place in this world. So the, the middle generation, her mother and her aunt and uncle, who are angry about being passed over for the inheritance, they all come to town for the funeral and all the skeletons of the family come out of the closet. There's addiction and abuse. And it's much more about the family than the birds. I just loved the ostriches as a setting for a story about family because they're very weird. They're weird birds. And I feel like all families have their own little weirdness. You know, they're in idiosyncrasies that make them unique and interesting. And it just kind of came together that way. Yeah. Like from the outset that we, we think that everyone's perfect, but then at home that there's like all these other things going on too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I love the the metaphor that you use with, with ostriches and, and families and for, for your book. Yeah. I was actually working on a travel piece writing about this ostrich ranch that was in the Mojave when I was trying to figure out where to set my book. And when I went out there and I saw the birds and I thought, oh, this is fun. I got to put the story here. This is too good. Mojave Desert. Love it. Yeah, it's beautiful out there. So it's not all that often when a book launch and a pandemic happen at the same (laughs) time and also being a first-time published author. Right. What was that experience like? being that first-time published author and launching your book during a pandemic? Yeah, unusual, (laughs) but I certainly was not alone. So at first I was very disappointed. I did the book launch. I got to have my party. And this is, people have been talking about COVID. The word was popping up a lot. People were starting to worry. But I got to do my launch party last week of February. And then I actually got to do a few events just like night after night, I did about four events. I did one in LA. I went up to the San Francisco Bay area because that's where I'm from. So I did two events in that area. And then I actually went to AWP, which is a writing conference that was in San Antonio that year. And by then people were really starting to get nervous. There was, there was a lot of talk of, do they cancel the conference? A lot of people didn't show for the conference, which was an interesting experience because I've been a few times to that conference and it's always just a huge number of people, a huge number of panels. And it got to the point where each time slot, there was only like one panel that hadn't been canceled. So everybody just went to that one and there were maybe 90 people. It was really small. And then by the time I got home, I was supposed to continue the book tour through like out to the desert and Southern San Diego. That was when everything just shut down. Like, don't leave your house. You're done. (laughs) And I was very disappointed. I'm not going to lie. But I also had friends who had their books released like two months later when really like they didn't even get to do the book launch party. They didn't get to do anything. So in in retrospect, I feel very lucky that I got to do what I did. And most of the events that I had planned, even though they were canceled initially, they did end up going online. So like the San Diego event was they have a book festival that happens in the spring and they ended up doing it online and that was lovely and I did a lot of book groups that I probably wouldn't have even got to meet there was one in like Rhode Island I mean places that I would never have been able to travel that far for a book club but everybody got so comfortable with Zoom that I feel like I got to actually probably do more than I would have if not for the pandemic you know in the long run 
long picture. One yeah. of the silver linings of the pandemic. And one you, of those silver linings. You're able to exactly. reach a, a wider audience. Yeah, exactly. And then I found out uh, last month that my book was awarded the Willa Cather Women Writing the West Award, which was an Congratulations. honor. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I guess that's one thing I've been surprised about is that when you're a first-time author, it kind of feels like that first week, that big pub day is, that's it, and that's all you get. And then what I have found is it actually, and I don't know if this is pandemic or just how it is, because it's the only experience I've had, but the legs of the story that, you know, I've been doing interviews and book clubs for over a year now, and I, ju- and I just won this award. And like, it kind of just keeps going, which is lovely. I really am enjoying that. Fantastic. And you're enjoying the, the whole experience to like move it on to, to online. Yeah, I'm comfortable with online. So that part wasn't so bad. And not having to travel as much is nice being home with the kids. And not that I was really hurting for kid time the last year and a half, but, but it would have been very different without the pandemic. Everything would have. So instead of pursuing a PhD and writing a thesis, you became an author and wrote a novel which is almost the same amount of, of words. Yeah, it's a lot of words. And yeah, I did a fair amount of research too. I probably would have done a lot more for a, a science thesis, but that's, yeah, I'm happy with where I landed. How many words is, is, is a novel? Well, 142 Ostriches is about 85,000 words, which is on the short side, but it's a good length for a first novel. And the story isn't that complicated. You know, it's a family drama. So it seemed like the right length I was happy with where that landed. I am almost done with my second novel and it's <laughs> quite a bit longer. And I'm I'm wondering if I'm going to get pushback from publishers or I don't know, like I'm a little nervous about, because right now I'm at about 140,000 words, which is definitely on the long side for a novel. Wow. So for, for so comparison, I'm worried they're going to be like, what, what would be a book that would be about 140,000? Yeah, I can Google one. You want me to look one up for fun? We're thinking Let's like see. Lord of the Rings. Oh, uh, well, and I don't know like e- how much, like each book of Lord of the Rings word count. 105 favorite novel word counts. Let's just see for fun. I know it's on the longer end. And some like really classic famous books are, oh, okay, here's an idea. This gives you a sense. So like the first Harry Potter book was just under 80,000 words, The Sorcerer's Stone. And then the Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which is book six, is 170,000 words. Whoa. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Her books got longer and longer. <laughs> yeah, they, they just, like, stair-step up, like, 20,000 words for each book. It's, that's nuts. Yeah. Is that the trajectory that you're going to be on? Oh, I don't know. This, this story, this story needed to be longer. It has a lot of elements to it, and it's historical fiction, and it's got a little bit of magic, and it's got two different narrators. So, I, I mean, there's really nothing I can cut, which is why I worry. Like, if they, if like a publisher is like, it's too long. It's not a lot I can do. Like, I'm a pretty concise writer. I don't tend to kind of go on and on about describing pretty vistas or anything. Like, I'm pretty plot driven. So. If it's 140,000 words, it needs 140,000 words. That's just what it is. 140,000 words. So what makes your writing so fascinating is the perspective you take on mindfulness, well-being, and then interlacing that with, with creativity. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of become my niche. I mean, it started with the very important meeting and then I was inspired by questions people were asking to go. I devised what I'm calling the six week mindful writer challenge, which is an opportunity to go a lot deeper with the mindfulness and creativity. The way it came about the challenge part was looking at when my writing really started to take off for me was about 2016, started to have some successes. And when I looked back on, you know, what did I change that all of a sudden I'd been writing for six years at that point? Why all of a sudden didn't my writing get better? And that was when I started meditating regularly. And so looking back on that, at first I thought, well, that's just coincidence. I didn't attribute it to mindfulness. But when I really got curious and dug in, I found some very specific ways that mindfulness had influenced my writing, allowed me to get better at it. And, uh, and so I found six specific things that mindfulness did for my writing. And I basically took those and turned that into my six week writers challenge. And that's what I'm offering for folks who maybe they've done a little meditating or they've done a little bit of writing and they're interested in going a little deeper with both. Yeah. If depending on when you, when this goes live, I'm going to be offering the challenge again on February 6th. Second, I think is when it starts and applications will open on January 1st. So if folks are interested, they can either go to a very important meeting and it's listed there under keep learning in the menu or just my website also has links to it. So if, if people are interested in that, I'm happy to, to answer questions. There we go. Something for people to, to look into. Well, we definitely have a lot of creative people in here. So like a lot of writers, a lot of dancers. So there you go. You've got potential audience for that. How did you become introduced to mindfulness? I know we talked about this a little bit, but what was the introduction into into mindfulness for you? Well, I first got interested in it back in, I think it was about 2002, 2003. And I went and did a day-long meditation session at Spirit Rock, which is a place up in Northern California where Jack Cornfield teaches and, and had such a lovely, peaceful time. I mean, it's a beautiful center. And then meditated off and on very sporadically for a long time. I mean, I was still interested in it, but I was busy and I didn't really make time for it and blah, 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 as we all do. And then in 2016, that was when I I was, I mentioned earlier, I hit this wall in my life where I just was so depressed. Uh, I hated my job, which didn't make any sense because it should have been a perfect job for me. I wasn't seeing enough of my kids. They started drinking too much, which made it very hard to get up in the morning and work on my novel. And it just felt like everything was going wrong. And that was when I took a leave from work to try to figure out what I was going to do. And while I was on leave, I I signed up for a class called The Meaningful Life because I was clearly having some kind of midlife crisis. (laughs) And it was a little more strict than other classes I'd done. And I think I needed that. The teacher who led it, he insisted that, you know, you meditate every morning. We would call in and he would lead a meditation for the class at 7.30 a.m. every day. And it was a 25-minute meditation. And then we met as a class every two weeks to do some deeper exercises and learn different things about mindfulness and how it affects your life. And that was a year long class. And by the time I'd finished that, I think I was worse. (laughs) I was worse than when I started because I was becoming more aware of the things that I'd been trying to avoid in my life, the reasons I was drinking, the things that I was unhappy about and just not dealing with and to turn towards them. It is not an easy thing to do. And 
things got worse for a while. I was very unhappy, but I was unhappy because I was finally looking at what I wasn't happy about in my life. And once I took that honest inventory of what I didn't like, I was able to kind of start chewing on changing it and making little changes bit by bit to make my life more of a life I enjoyed, like a life where I got to spend time with my kids, a life where I got to do my writing, not just an hour in the morning, a life where I didn't have to spend three hours stuck in a car commuting and sit in a windowless room all day. And yeah, that was, I mean, that was a rough period, but it was worth the work. Absolutely. Like one of the things that that mindfulness teaches is to really focus on the present. But if you've got a lot of things going on, then it can bring up a lot of negative thoughts. Yeah. Sometimes the present is uncomfortable. If it's always about like working through that, like knowing what it is that you become uncomfortable about and then that's something that you can address. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but if you can't recognize it, you can't address it. I've always been curious about who is mindfulness for and who is it not for? I was always thinking that it was for everybody. Like who do you think that it's for and who it's not for? I think it can be for everybody. I think it absolutely can't. I don't think there's anyone who'd be like, oh, you shouldn't do mindfulness. Like, particularly if you're drawn to it, then by all means, it's probably for you. I think where mindfulness can be tricky is anyone who has a history of trauma. Uh, and, and trauma has, a, in my mind, a wide definition. If you have any trauma in your life and you try to sit quietly with it by yourself without any training or help, it can be really difficult isn't even the word. You can re-traumatize yourself. And that's why I think it's worth being very careful. If you have the instinct that that this may be something you want to do, I, I always encourage people to like talk to a therapist about it or to take a class, uh, not to just like go online and find some meditation that they're going to do by themselves. Because very quickly what can happen is, is that when we turn towards the things that are harder in our life, it, and it, I have to be careful with my terms because in meditation, if you're sitting quietly, you're not necessarily turning towards anything. You're not intentionally bringing up old traumas. But when we sit quietly, sometimes those things can arise. And if you don't have resources to deal with them, you can make it worse. And then you're locked down even harder and it's even it's an even deeper wound then. So I think... I think anyone who has any hesitation but is curious if meditation could help them, I, I like find someone in person, not just an online app, but find a therapist or somebody who is a trained meditation teacher to, to walk you through it so that you don't re-traumatize yourself. Definitely. The individualized healthcare advice is, is always important, particularly for, for people who've got PTSD. Yeah, yeah. precisely. Yeah. There's a lot of research that suggests that even just the act of breathing slowly calms people mm. down. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very true. I use it all the time when my teenage daughter and I have disagreements and I'll find myself getting really flustered because the, um, the vagus nerve, which is dominant for the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the system which calms us down. If you make your exhale longer than your inhale, it engages that parasympathetic nerve nervous system and the vagus nerve. And it's such a, it's a brilliant hack. 
Like if you find yourself like, I'm so pissed off and I can't have a reasonable conversation, I will like walk back into my office. And if I take three deep breaths where I make my exhale longer than my inhale, it's like magic. I suddenly feel rational again. I feel calm. I can go back into the other room and have a conversation with my daughter, even if she's flying off the handle. But our brains take a lot of cues from our body. And our breath is one of the few responses in our body that we can control consciously. So yeah, taking a few deep breaths can do amazing things for quieting our fight or flight response when things piss us off or when we feel suddenly very unhappy for any reason. That's a great hack. Definitely like just breathing slowly. This is a conversation that I've had with some of the previous guests when we take care of ourselves and we're able to show up better for, for other people. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be grounded, especially if you're dealing with teenagers <laughs> or anyone who is difficult in your life. Yeah. You have to ground yourself first and, and find your own little piece of calm. And then when you bring that calm into a relationship, any kind of exchange, you get a very different response. If I scream and yell at my daughter, she's going to scream and yell back. If I come in and I'm like, okay, I hear you're unhappy. Let's break it down. Then suddenly her anger is short-circuited. And then pretty quickly we're figuring out where the hell everything went crazy and dealing with it. It's a total game changer. Total game changer. Like what drew me to, to mindfulness was not just like the, the stress relieving components of it, but the longevity components to it meditating mindfulness can aid in longevity by extending a lot of the, the telomeres in, in the genes which comes from research from elizabeth blackburn nobel prize winner right yeah yeah i'm fascinated by that and then you look at long-term meditators and you're like yeah they look good for like 90 something <laughs> and they're like really just happy healthy people well well later into life than i think the general population like I've just met some people that that meditate constantly and they're just just so happy and just so calm. Like even just like even the the, the most stressful situations, so calm. Yeah. For example, say with like astronauts, like that they have to like train under the, these really stressful conditions, and like it, it might only be them in in that situation. You have to be focused. You have to be present. May not be like traditional meditation but it's still mindfulness being in that present moment being aware of your emotions and not letting your emotions take over your your decision making yeah yeah it's an interesting thing to have like mindfulness just to have that in our life and to see you know like tech companies now making making apps for just making it even more accessible for people yeah that's true. And even the apps that aren't necessarily like mindfulness related, and people are starting to talk about mindfully using technology. So technology and mindfulness, is that something that you've been into using apps for, for meditation? Oh, well, I've dabbled with them. At this point, my meditation is I've got a practice that I like and I, I, you know, I just sit down with my timer. The only app I really use anymore is the meditation timer app, which I love. It's very handy, but there are so many great resources like through Calm and mindfulness and mindful.org. There's, what was meditationtimer.org has a whole, I mean, just any time of day you can log on 
and sit in on an amazing meditation. So on that front, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. As we come towards the end of our episode, we've got a few remaining questions. What does living healthier today mean to you? Oh, I was reading a book written by an ultra runner. I'm going to forget his name now. But one of the things he said is that, and he's, you know, hardcore athlete training every day. And he said, every day you're either getting stronger or you're getting weaker. That there is no such thing as stasis in a human body and or human mind, I believe. And so every day you have an opportunity to get a little stronger or get a little weaker. And I think when I think along those terms, every day I try to do a little something to knowing that I'm not in stasis, I try to do a little something that nudges the needle towards healthy choices. So I may, you know, if I don't have time to meditate or for some reason it got interrupted and I only did a couple minutes, just taking a moment, maybe it's just even in the shower to just take a deep breath and feel the water on my shoulders. And that I feel like is that moment of like, okay, I'm acknowledging that I'm taking this moment for mindfulness, even if it's not an official meditation or Maybe it's lunch and instead of making myself mac and cheese, I'll have that salad. And I'm like, okay, that was a win for today. Today I nudged the needle towards healthier instead of unhealthy. And so that concept of we are not creatures of stasis, we are not locked in place ever. And just knowing that every day we have the choice to a little bit healthier or a little bit less healthy. What, what motivates you to be healthy? I want to keep up with my kids. I want to be able to like take them backpacking when they're out doing me. You know, right now they're younger. Well, actually, my daughter can outdo me at this point. She's 14 now, so she could definitely out hike me. But like, I think I could still take my boy. <laughs> my hope is to be able to keep up with them for as long as possible. I want to. I want to go on hikes. I want to have adventures with them, and I want to be healthy enough to to do that. That's what motivates me. That's a very loving thing to do. Is to be able to care for yourself so you can show up for others yeah 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 and there will come a point where they leave me far behind but i'm gonna make that day as far out as possible (laughs) you've come a long way from the time that you were 18 and you thought that you wanted to pursue a career in marine ecology to where you are now being a first-time published author what would you tell your 18 year old self I think if I could tell my 18 year old self anything, it would be to calm down. (laughs) I had this sense when I was younger that every decision I made would be like my decision for the rest of my life, right? That if I took that job at Starbucks, I was gonna be working at Starbucks forever. And so when I had to take a job at Starbucks because I needed a job, I got kind of low thinking like, oh, God, this isn't what I wanted to do with my life. And instead of being able to see it as the thing I was doing then to pay the bills and that I had a lot of life ahead of me. And if I would just calm down and take a breath, I could probably have seen more clearly that it was just a phase of life, not that I had made some lifelong choice to always be a barista. I don't know. No, I think it was was a psychologist from... Harvard and he's and one of the things that he says is we underestimate the people that we're going to be in the future mm-hmm. and that we're gonna be yeah. even better than what, what we are now in the yeah. future. Wow, that's great. 
That is great. Yeah, I wish I had told myself that at 18. That would have helped me calm down a little bit and be less stressed about the mess of my 20s because they were kind of messy. I think it's when you're 18, every, everything just seems so serious and so permanent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's like if you pursue this career, that's the only career that you're going to have for the rest of your life. For some people it is. Right, right. Or if you go on one date with that guy, you're going to have to get married and then it's going to be the rest of your life with this. It's like, actually, you could just go on a date. That's okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. Fantastic. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, April. I hope you have too. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to talk. I appreciate it. After a series of freelance copywriting jobs, April began her own blog, which was soon listed by Writer's Digest as one of the best 101 websites for writers. She then quit copywriting and began work on her debut novel, 142 Ostriches, which has been extremely well received. April's story serves as an inspiration for any young writers looking to turn their dream into a career. Share this podcast with one person who you think would benefit from it. Leave a rating and review of the Healthy Today podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our team includes assistant Tania and Akia Sadia, scriptwriter Brian Ariotto, and voiceover Yanni Harris. This episode was produced by Resonate Recordings. In tomorrow's episode, you'll hear from Joshua Shea on recovering from pornography addiction.